HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, a supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. For more information, visit corin.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Hello, welcome to Japanese. I'm your host, Akiko Tema, a food writer and director of the New York Japanese Culinary Academy, which promotes a deeper, deeper understanding of Japanese cuisine in America. We are broadcasting live from our studio at Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn. This show is all about Japanese food and food culture. We see sushi at every day in the supermarket, but what is beyond sushi? We hear dashi, ramen, izakaya, but what exactly are they? Japanese food is still a mystery for many people, so I'll try to demystify it in this program with my cool guests. And my guest today is David Israelo, who is the global winner of the 5th Washoku World Challenge. The Washoku World Challenge is a cooking contest where Japanese cuisine chefs from around the world compete in the technical expertise and passion for Japanese food. It is organized by the Japanese government, the Ministry of Agriculture, Forestry, and Fisheries of Japan. And I got uh, two lucky opportunities to taste uh, David's Kaiseki-style dinner recently, and I was very impressed. So today we'll discuss how he learned the traditional Kaiseki concept and how he expresses in, in it uniquely on his plate and his ex- experience at the Tokyo Sushi Academy, which we're going to talk about uh, in details later, and the documentary film he's working on, and much, much more. But uh, quickly, we, before we start, Japan Needs is available on the Heritage Radio Network website as well as on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify as a podcast. So please go to iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify and subscribe to Japan Needs. And please write a review. We appreciate your feedback. Also, if you have any ideas about the topics of the show or show guests, please let us know. You can email us at japanneeds at heritageradionetwork.org or kikwatema.com. Now let's start our conversation with David Israel. Hi, David. Welcome. Thanks for having me. 
All right. So, um, so you have very interesting background. So, where from, and uh, what did you eat when you grew up? So, I'm from New Jersey, and uh, growing up, we ate all sorts of things, but I ate a lot of tombstone pizzas. <laughs> and when I was thinking about this, I thought about I used to love putting pepperonis in the toaster oven and watching them slowly cook. And uh, one of the first things I learned how to cook was scrambled eggs. And I remember loving to cook scrambled eggs and that first point where you push the spoon through and it's just a little thicker mm -hmm. and it starts to scramble. These are sort of the things that come to mind when you ask that question. Mm, I probably never have thought about that when I was cooking that huge. <laughs> well, that's uh, your nature, I think. So, um, and uh, I heard that you used to be uh, working at a market as a market analyst in finance. Yeah. So, how did you? I mean, you cooked at the younger age, but you know, you completely went to the different path. So, how did it happen to get into cooking again? Yeah. So, in college, I was studying finance and computer science, and I started cooking more in college and watching more food media. On the Food Network and different shows like this that drew my interest, but professionally I was still pursuing computers and finance. After graduating, I moved to New York City and I was working in finance full time. And being young and having a job that was paying well, I had the opportunity to eat in some really great restaurants in New York City. And I was introduced to Japanese food, especially、um, that was outside of just the sort of standard sushi restaurants. So I got to eat soba and eat at izakayas and eat shojin. Cuisine and Kaiseki cuisine. And that was really the beginning of what drew me into high end cuisine and especially Japanese food.、Mm. So, you know, there is a big step out of、uh, the finance world to actually study. So, what happened? Yeah. So, I think it was about eight years ago during my first job, I had this idea of wanting to show. People more about food, a deeper experience. And I thought that if I was going to be able to create this opportunity and create this experience, the first thing that I needed to do was get formal training. So I started studying at the International Culinary Center in their traditional French school.、Mm -hmm. That's in Soho. So you, did you do、mm -hmm. part time? Part -time? Yeah. So they have a course where you can take the first level as an amateur. And so the first thing I did was this course. And then a few years later, I decided to continue my studies. and The course that I finished, I was able to take an examination and then bridge into the rest of the program.、Mm. So during my second job in finance, I was going to school、um, at night three days a week. Oh, wow. Yeah. That must be really hard. It was really difficult, actually. When I decided to do it, it was a tough choice. But I was looking for another job in finance and I couldn't find something that I was interested in. So I thought I would take the opportunity to continue studying cuisine.、Mm. And so I basically went into my boss's office and I said, Listen, I'm, I'm, I'm really happy with this job. I really enjoy what I do here, but I've decided that I'm going to go to culinary school. And I understand if that doesn't work for you, but I want to figure out how to make this work. And I'll come in early on the days that I can and I'll stay late on the other days, but I'm going to have to leave at five o'clock, three days a week.、Mm. And she said, Listen, we really want to keep you here. You're good at your job. If you think you can do it, then you can do it. Wow. And so I was going into JP Morgan at nine in the morning. And then at five o'clock, I was rushing out, heading downtown, changing to Chef White's.、Mm. And then the next day, back to work. Wow. I'm just curious has,、uh, how、uh, your colleagues reacted to Were they jealous? Yeah, I think it, it was <laughs> difficult because, you know, not many people are leaving from that job at five o'clock. And I just happened to be good and quick and efficient with my work. So I would work very hard and get everything done. And I would log back in at home if I needed to finish work. But 
I made it I made it happen and it was it was very very difficult and I think some people probably wondered how it was possible mm. for me to finish all my work so quickly. Hey. So that's really proves that you like this so much. Yeah, it was the point that I noticed where I would be sort of kind of fading out and tired maybe at four o'clock at work. And then I found myself in the kitchen at 10 p.m. still energized. And I realized <laughs> that point where it's like, wow, maybe this is something that I should really pursue. Mm. So eventually you finish the course and then quit. I got to the point about the program had seven m- months for me to complete. And about five months in, the foundation at my work that allowed me to go to school at night started to shift. My boss was moving to a new job. Um, her boss was moving to a new job. My client was changing. And I had this moment where I was being offered new opportunities that six months ago I would have jumped at. But now it meant that I wouldn't be able to necessarily finish culinary school. I would have to pause. Mm. And I had a few weeks to really think about it. And in that time, I decided I was going to pursue cuisine full time. And that's when I gave my notice at JP Morgan.、Mm. And then I finished culinary school and started doing internships in New York City. So that, I think it's a good test. For yourself to determine to commit yourself to the new career. Absolutely.、Right. Well, no regrets. Not yet. <laughs> But congratulations. Thank you. So, okay, so how did you, I mean, of course, you now cook Japanese cuisine, but how did you become in- interested in Japanese cuisine? So, I've always been interested in Japanese cuisine. It's much more. Kind of unknown and mysterious. When I go to especially Kaiseki cuisine or more high end cuisine, they're doing techniques that I've never seen before, and it's not easy to understand how was this done. And so I was always kind of enamored with Japanese cuisine, but there aren't a lot of structured、um, culinary programs in New York to study this.、Mm-hmm. And so I went to ICC to learn French techniques, and there I met Hiroko Shimbo, and I found out about the class that she offers there, Japanese Essentials. And as a student, I was able to volunteer and assist her course.、Mm-hmm. And I assisted her course twice. That was kind of the beginning of my understanding of Japanese cuisine in a more structured way.、Mm. Right, so Hiroko actually came to the show a while ago. And、uh, she's one of the very few、uh, instructors of Japanese cuisine in this country. So I think、uh, you kind of、uh, got lucky and also you found your own path. Okay, so,、um, yeah, so you went to Japan, right? Um, so, how did it happen? So, the circumstances of everything going on in my life created an opportunity where I had time and space to travel. And so, I decided I'm going to just go to Japan. I didn't know anyone, I didn't have contacts, and I didn't really have a plan, but I figured I will just go and I'll figure it out. And so, I went on a three month tourist visa and I traveled around. and I was really fortunate and lucky to make connections and meet people and find my way into kitchens.、Mm. When I went, I thought kind of the baseline was no matter what, I will just eat food, eat Japanese food in Japan. What does it mean to eat Japanese food in Japan? Why is it different? Why is it the same? Where does it overlap? Where does it differ? That was my foundation. And then above that, I thought if I can find my way into stage or train in some restaurants, that would be really like the best.、Mm. And so I was lucky to have that opportunity. Right. Well, let me ask you first, though, that what was the difference by, you know, New York City had really great Japanese restaurants, but、mm. did you feel any different experience? I feel like there are certain Japanese restaurants in New York City that offer that same sort of feel. And it's hard to put my finger on exactly what it is. And I'm still trying to figure out what that is. I think you could say it's. A big part of it is omotenashi,、mm. Japanese hospitality. And I think it translates here as well. 
But in Japan, it's so ever-present in a restaurant, such a high level of hospitality. Mm. Um, there's this authenticity to it. And there's this feel that people there are really doing the work because they believe in it. Mm. Um, they're not dialing it in. They're not phoning it in. They're really there doing what they want to be doing, believing in the food that they're serving. Mm. And I think that that feeling transmits also, often in Japan, there's a lot of counter-service style. So you can really watch what people are doing and interact with them and watch others interacting with them. Mm. And that experience for me was really special. Right. I think, uh, it, in my opinion, it's very personal, but omotenashi, um, the hospitality in Japanese style, it's uh, based on respect mm. to food, ingredients, to customers, of course, but to everybody. Mm. We, we respect, uh, we pass on the respect throughout the society, you know, it's like a chain reaction. So everybody is kind of responsible and uh, there's no tip, tipping mm. system. So it's really genuine motivation. Yeah. Yeah. So that's my opinion. But I agree. I think it's the level of respect that you said towards the ingredients as well as the guest together that really creates a special experience. Mm. Right. Because you, you're treated well and then the soul is... Like everybody, like in the convenience store, mm -hmm. you know, there's a respect element. So, yeah. Okay. Um, so you started in a kitchen in Japan. So how did you get it? And actually when and how did you get it? And uh, where was it? So, so um, when I was first in Japan, I was trying to figure out where I could stage. I was sending messages. I was reaching out where I could. And I was actually sitting down for lunch at a Kapo Tempura restaurant called Mozute in mm. Roppongi. And I was there a little bit late, so the restaurant was kind of quiet. I think there were two other guests while I was there. And the chef took an interest in me and just started talking with me. He didn't speak much English, but he was willing to chat with me. And I was telling him that I was from New York and I cook and I'm in Japan traveling and that I have no plan. And he was so into this idea that I was there traveling with no plan. And he said, what are you doing after you eat here? And I said, I have no idea. And he said, okay, come with me. I'll introduce you to my friend Taiga. He speaks really good English. So I said, great, let's go meet Taiga. Mm. And he walked out of the restaurant with me, still in his chef whites, across Roppongi 10 minutes, brought me to his other restaurant, Mozu, sat me down at the bar and said, here's Taiga, Taiga, this is David. Okay, thank you. And he left. I sat down with Taiga and we spoke for a while. I ordered a beer. We became friends and he invited me out to dinner to a restaurant where the chef is a friend of his. Mm. So a week later, I went out to dinner to Salmon and Trout in Shimokitazawa. And we were eating dinner there, and Taiga knew that I was looking to stage and trying to figure out where I could work and train. And I was in this restaurant, and I had this kind of feel. It's this Brooklyn kind of vibe, but very Japanese in terms of how the service is and the food and the ingredients and the presentation. I said, Taiga, do you think I could stage here? Mm. I said, I don't know, let me ask Let me ask Khan. <laughs> and so they spoke quickly for a few minutes in Japanese, and uh, Khan looked at me and smiled and said, okay, how about tomorrow at 2 o'clock? Oh, wow. So that was my first day in the restaurant, mm -hmm. staging in Japan mm, at so, Salmon and Trout. So how was that? I mean, by the way, Shimokitazawa is kind of very um, in, mm. you know, cool place, you know, go restaurants and shops. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was kind of a casual place. The restaurant? Yeah. So the restaurant's a, like a eight-minute walk south of 
Shimokitazawa Station towards Sanjengaya, and the restaurant is just a small eight-seat counter restaurant. So it's it's informal and it has a convivial kind of vibe, but the food is a- executed at a high level and tasting menu format only. Mm. Wow! So it sounds like you're exposed to diners directly, and I'm sure they got questions like, "What are you doing? <laughs> Where yeah. are you from?" The kind of thing. Absolutely. And so in this place of not knowing what I was doing in Japan and sort of slowly allowing things to unfold, I was training in salmon and trout. At the counter, and that's when I met Chef Yuki Tanaka. He、mm. was there for dinner,、mm. and when I started speaking with him, he then invited me to train in his restaurant, and that was when I first trained in、uh, a tr- more traditional Japanese restaurant,、mm. which is Ise Soyoshi in Azabujuban. Right. So tell us more about、uh, Tanaka-san.、Mm. So as I said, I met him over. I met him at Salmon and Trout when I was there, cooking with Kan, and、um, it's a collaboration、me. dinner with Kan. So when I was so this is so while I was staging in、mm-hmm. Shimokitazawa with Khan, I was just helping him with his menu. That's when I met Yuki Tanaka. He was there as a diner. As a diner. Yeah. Okay. And then he invited me to work to train in his restaurant. So then I started training in his restaurant when I had time,、mm. um, and we spent several days together. And he taught me so much, and he speaks great English, and he has such a background in washoku and really knowledgeable and passionate about what he does.、Mm. And I learned a lot training with him.、Right. So I I got a chance to meet Tanaka-san, you know, last week because when you you did a great dinner, kaisek dinner, but、uh, Tanaka-san was formally trained、mm. at Kikunoi,、yeah. which is a Michelin starred,、mm. one of the best kaisek restaurants. So、yeah. sounds like you really learned the basic of kaiseki. Yeah. So he spent four years working at Kikunoi before traveling and then opening his own restaurant three、mm. years ago. Right. So、uh, how long did you stage with him? So I staged with him、mm, several days. Over the period of the three months that I was there, I would go in whenever I could,、mm. and then so basically I was in Japan for three months on a tourist visa, and then when I returned, I went to the Tokyo Sushi Academy.、Mm, so I, yeah, I was going to ask. Yeah. So yeah, okay. Well, just so when I was at the Tokyo Sushi Academy, school was five days a week.、Mm-hmm. Then on Saturday, I would st-、um, stage with Tanaka-san. Oh, okay. And then Sunday was my day off.、Mm. So let's talk about Tokyo Sushi Academy because I'm sure、yeah. people may be interested in、Absolutely. knowing. Absolutely. So, so like I said, I staged at Salmon and Trout. I staged at Ise Soyoshi. I staged with my friends at Mozute Cooking Tempura, and then I staged in Osaka at Kigawa, which is on a Kapo Kaiseki restaurant.、Mm. And after I finished all these experiences, I learned a lot. But in some of those kitchens, a lot of the Conversation was in Japanese, and I could understand what was going on, but I couldn't ask very in-depth questions. And when I saw that the Tokyo Sushi Academy had a an eight-week program offered in English, one month sushi, one month washoku, I thought this would be a great opportunity for me to round out this experience of staging and have a teacher there speaking English. With a lot of experience, who could answer all the questions that were left unanswered from the previous travels?、Mm, so, right. So,、um, you know, traditionally, like you know, the zero dreams of sushi,、mm. right? That's kind of like, don't ask questions. You just learn by watching、yeah. for twenty years, and finally, or maybe not, you have to wait to become a sushi chef.、Yeah. That time sounds like over, and、um, I think globally there's a shortage of supply of sushi chefs. So.、Mm. I mean, traditional people may think, you know, kind of sushi school could be just a shortcut.、Mm. But I think, considering the demand of sushi chefs, 
I think it's a great idea to have that English courses, you know, the sushi specialized school. So I heard it's, um, it's, it's been uh, founded 16 years ago, and uh, they have like 3,500 quadrates already. So it's a pretty established school. Yeah, absolutely. They have a long history, and um, I'm not sure when they started the English courses. So originally it was sushi school for Japanese students, and I think their main course was in Shinjuku. Mm. And then they launched the English class near Tsukiji. Okay. And I'm not sure how long that program's been running, but several several years, maybe more. Um, and it's a great program. And the teachers there have so much experience, and the curriculum is really dialed in. And so within a month or within eight weeks, I was able to learn so much. And you're right across from the fish market. Fish is delivered every day. Mm. We get to see a full repertoire of ingredients. We work with shellfish, um, flatfish, roundfish, all different types of vegetables. Um, we're making rice every day. We're making sushi every day. Um, it was a really incredible experience for mm. me. I learned so much there very quickly. It sounds like that's a very foundational part of Japanese cuisine. Yeah. And you're able to confirm what you're learning. Yeah, in absolutely. Great. Okay, so uh, let's talk about... We have a lot to talk about, yeah. so let's just move on to the, the Washoku World Challenge. Okay. All right, so... Um, so you won the first place at the fifth Washoku World Challenge in 2018. So first of all, what is Washoku World Challenge? So like you said a little bit in the introduction, the Washoku World Challenge is a competition for non-Japanese chefs cooking Japanese food. It's sponsored by the MAF, the Ministry of Agriculture, Forestries and Fisheries, the government organization. And it's about promoting Washoku globally and finding people that are passionate and um, skilled around the world to showcase their talents. Mm -hmm. So this is now the sixth year, and um, how it works is that in six cities, they have a preliminary competition, and then six winners go to Tokyo for the finals. Mm. So it's uh, Tokyo, uh, New York, London, LA, Bangkok, Hong Kong, and Tokyo. Yes. Right. So, so the, you won New York you know, competition and then move on to Tokyo. Yeah. Yeah. Then who did you meet? Who were you competing with in Tokyo? In Tokyo. So in Tokyo, um, there were people from all around the world. So we had the chef from Bangkok, who was Thai, the chef from Hong Kong, who I think was from China, but maybe from Hong Kong. The chef from London was originally from Italy. Um, the chef who won in Tokyo was from LA or San Francisco. Um, so people were really from all over. I mean, we had six people there, and I think there were five translators because they were speaking so many different languages. There were, <laughs> everyone had a translator and a video person with them basically the whole time. Mm -hmm. And I made some amazing connections with people that have really incredible experience um, cooking Japanese food all over the world. Mm, so what's the requirement to apply for you know, participating in yeah. the competition? So to compete in the Washoku World Challenge, I believe you need four or five years of experience and then you submit your application your intention and what your background is and then they ask you to submit the recipes and the pictures for the recipes that are required that year mm. so the experience of cooking or cooking japanese cuisine i think it's just cooking experience mm. okay so the door is really wide open yeah mm. i think it's pretty wide open but from the application they'll see if your experience really has anything to do with japanese cuisine but I think really the important part is the recipes that you submit because that's what you're going to have to make. Mm. So if you're cooking Japanese food or not in your restaurant, the idea is can you cook Japanese food? 
right. during the competition. So understanding the dashi and yeah. the basic knife skills and those. So without written, being written, that's kind of mandatory. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. In the first competition, the, the components were knife skills for 30 minutes and then suimono for 90 minutes. And in the suimono, of course, the most important component mm. is the dashi. Mm. So suimono is basically a clear soup. Exactly. Right. So, so what did you cook at the challenge? So in the challenge, the first competition in New York, I did ebi shinjo mm-hmm. with the clear dashi lightly seasoned with a little salt and uh, usukuchi, light soy sauce. Mm-hmm. And I paired well, it with... What's ebishinjo for the listeners? Ebishinjo is a, a dumpling made out of shrimp and fish cake. Mm. Um, and so to make the ebishinjo, though, we don't really have good um, fish paste here, the Japanese style. So my decision was to actually make it by hand in the competition, mm. in the mortar and pestle, <laughs> suribachi, Japanese wow. mortar and pestle. Mm, traditional, yeah, completely. Very difficult in 90 minutes. Right, yeah. So but, I was sweating. But you did it. Yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, so the um, why do you think you won the prize? I think in the first competition, part of what set me apart was what we were just talking about. This idea of doing everything by hand and showing as much skill as possible. Um, You know, some people may have had a clean station and been finished 10 minutes early, but the judges might have wondered why they didn't use that extra 10 minutes. Mm. So I used all of my time and actually went a little bit over. But I think that the fact that I did so much from scratch and showed as much skill as possible in the short time that we had is a big part of what set me apart. Mm, right. So that's really the essence. Everything by hand. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. I had the same mentality in the final competition where I wanted to show as much as I could so the judges could see as much of me as possible. Mm. And also, I, I heard that you uh, stressed the, the seasonality of ingredients. Absolutely. How did you do that? So actually, when I was in the competition, the New York round, I was apprenticing on a farm in uh, the Hudson Valley mm. called Hawthorne Valley Farm. So I had to take the day off and drive to the city for the competition. And two days before the competition, we had harvested all of our daikon. And so I had we had 2,000 pounds of daikon. So I took a big arm, an armful home and practiced katsuramuki again right before the competition. Mm. So I was coming from the farm when I was entering the competition. And I was thinking a lot about the ingredients. And so when I was in Japan, I noticed that the spinach, there were two options. One was very flat leaf and very kind of um, greenhouse grown. And one had crinkled leaves. And I learned on the farm from watching that that crinkled leaf is part of the process that happens when um, when cruciferous vegetables are exposed to frost. Mm. And so that crinkle, to me, I knew that it was a frosted spinach. And that frosting, what happens is the plant releases more sugar into the leaves to, to lower its freezing point so that it won't freeze and kind of protective mechanism. So I knew that that spinach would be more sweet and flavorful than the other. And the judges were very impressed with my choice. Mm, now from now I have to look for spinach. Yeah, in the uh, winter. Right. <laughs> wow. So that's interesting. Um, all right. By the way, the katsuramuki, that's mm. like a you know, the test of nice skills. Yeah. Basically, you just thinly cut. Well, they had so many different ideas of cutting the Japanese knives, but it's so hard to thin, uh, thinly cut daikon, hard daikon. So. Absolutely. Right. Something I noticed in the competition was the judges were actually feeling the surface of the vegetables after they were cut to see how sharp the knives were. Mm, oh, wow. So this includes uh, knife sharpening skills too. Absolutely. Oh, my God. <laughs> right. Um, so the... 
How has life changed after receiving the prize? I've just tried to stay open to whatever opportunities present themselves. So when I got back to New York City, I was contacted by the organizers for this year's competition, and they let me know that they were coming to New York for the semifinal round and asked if I wanted to collaborate and coordinate for a dinner event. And of course I said yes, so it was a great opportunity. When I started thinking about that dinner, I started thinking, I'm going to go fishing for the fish. And <laughs> if I'm going to do this dinner, I'm going to go to the farm and harvest all the vegetables. And if I'm going to serve chicken, I'm going to go to the farm and I'm going to slaughter and process the chickens. Mm. And if I'm going to serve mushrooms, I'm going to go into the woods and find the mushrooms. And when I realized how much effort was going to go into this meal, I thought, I want to figure out some way to express this. I want to show the diners what it is that we did to prepare for this meal so they can understand more. Mm. I could tell them that we went fishing, but what if I could show them? So that's when we decided to film everything. Mm. And during the dinner, we screened some clips. So, for example, and you were there, we screened some footage of us fishing, and then we served that sashimi. Mm. We screened some footage of us harvesting vegetables, and then we served those vegetables. Mm. Right. So it's a farm to table, river to table, <laughs> sea to table. Yeah. Right. That's really important. I mean, not just the uh, Japanese cuisine, but, uh, you know, the Blue Houston Barns, they show you before and after. Yeah. Right. So we really appreciate um, the seasonality, the bounty yeah. of nature. Yeah. Right. Wow, that's great. Okay. And uh, so I think the final of this year's Washok World Challenge is going to be on January 28th in a couple of weeks. So uh, would you recommend that uh, many you know, Japanese chefs compete in the future challenge? Absolutely. I think it's a great opportunity to meet other chefs that are in the same kind of mentality. I think it's a great opportunity to test oneself's skills. Um, you have the opportunity to cook Japanese food and present it to judges who are top chefs in Japan and their feedback and what you can learn from that experience is tremendous. Mm. Okay, so, all right. So let's take a quick break here, and uh, when we come back, we will talk about uh, David's documentary film uh, that he's working, working on. So please stay with us. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, a supplier of Japanese ship knives and restaurant supplies. Corin is proud of their Japanese culture and traditions, but they want you to know that their products are not just for Japanese restaurants. The knives and tableware bring out the best qualities of food from every culture and fit into every restaurant, from French to Pan-Asian to American, and that is why they are located in New York City, where people from every country in the world come to eat. Coin's Tribeca showroom is home to the most extensive collection of Japanese chef knives in the world, including Japan. Stop by to view the exquisitely designed tableware and the wireless natural sharpening stones. They have a whole range of knife services, from repair and rust removal to reshaping and realigning. Corin is dedicated to this ideal, bringing the highest quality Japanese design to your table, so you can experience the unparalleled quality of Japanese craftsmanship in your home or restaurant. For more information, visit corin.com. Welcome back. You're listening to Japanese Broadcasting Live from our studio in Bushwick, Brooklyn. I'm your host, Akiko Tema, and my guest today is David Disraelo, who is the global winner of the 5th World Bashoku World Challenge. So, um, so I got lucky to taste your kaiseki-style dishes um, in two occasions, and I was so impressed. So um, how do you feel about being non-Japanese, cooking the traditional 
Kaiseki cuisine? To me, it's great. It's a great opportunity learning about Kaiseki cuisine with a focus on seasonality, with a focus on ingredients and a focus on showing them in their place lines up with what I want to be doing in the kitchen. So I think it's a great opportunity to showcase our ingredients here using techniques from Japan. I think the real spirit of washoku and kaiseki cuisine is to use the ingredients from the place. Mm. I think there's a certain balance with using ingredients from Japan, especially for things like kombu and katsobushi and other things that have long shelf life and storage potential. Um, but the balance of using those ingredients with our local ingredients, I think, has tremendous potential. Mm. I, I think uh, people have image of Japanese cuisine uh, made with Japanese ingredients, but I think you're totally right. I mean, everything, I think, based on local and sustainable, that's the traditional Japanese cuisine. I think Nordic cuisine became really popular because they have the same principle of utilizing what's available in nature mm. at your local area. So, yeah, that's great. And also, of course, I see you as an ambassador to educate diners and consumers to introduce what dashi is. It's mm. not just stock. There's mm. so much behind it. And uh, who's making it, why it's made this way, that way. And you know that all those principles pretty deeply. So, yeah, I really hope that uh, you're going to keep doing this for a long time. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so, um, so you're working on documentary uh, you mentioned. So, tell us more about it. Yeah. So, I was talking a little bit about the inspiration for the documentaries being this opportunity where we were doing the work and wanted to show it. And an, a big part of what we wanted to show is not just the ingredients, but also the people. So, we want to show who are the fishermen, who are the farmers, who are the foragers. What are they doing and how is it impacting what we're consuming? What are the relationships between the farmers and the cooks and the guests and the restaurants? So our hope is to really show people a deeper story of where the food came from, how it happened, and how many people and how much effort's involved in putting food on a plate in mm. a restaurant. Right. So are they um, mainly from America or Japan or where are the, all those producers from? So this particular sort of episode or snapshot that we've captured was for this New York farm-style kaiseki dinner. Mm -hmm. So the focus was all on what was around us and what was available. So we went fishing in Long Island. We went farming in the Hudson Valley. We went foraging in Prospect Park. And for each of those endeavors, we spent time with someone who's really an expert in that space. Mm. Um, and to try to learn from them and ask them, because they're there every day doing this. And I can go fishing for a day and say, this fish looks good, but he's there fishing every day. And he, he can teach me so much more than I can kind of know if I don't, go to him to mm. learn right so the theme is more about um the food sourcing in a way yeah it's about the food it's about like painting a broader picture so it's when you go to a restaurant you see food on a plate and it's beautiful often and delicious and the experience can be wonderful but it's very isolated and we don't have a vision of what it is that it even really how it happened i mean a simple example might be a brussels sprout the first time someone sees brussels sprouts on the stalk it's kind of eye-opening wow, I never knew Brussels sprouts grow like that. So seeing things in their environment, I think is really important 
for people to understand what it is that they're consuming. Mm. And I think it really ties into washoku and kaiseki, which is about presenting ingredients in a very natural way. Mm. Right. So, I mean, that's complete opposite of last 30, 40 years of American consumer culture. Everything is boxed, packaged, like, you know, frozen even. Yeah. So that's a wake-up call. Yeah. Right. So when do you think it's going to be out? Um, our target is... Uh, Within the next couple of months. Okay. So when is... Spring. Oh, yeah. So are you planning to put it on YouTube or what's your scale of... Well, that's what we're trying to figure out. We're going to screen it and do some dining events. Mm -hmm. um, Sort of the opposite style. I don't know if we should say too much, but it'll be sort of the inverted version of the dinner that you saw. Mm. Where we'll be serving some food as part of the experience of watching the film mm. rather than watching the film as part of the experience of serving the food. Right. Wow. That's exciting. Yeah, so keep me posted when it's done. Maybe I can come back and uh, talk Absolutely. about, uh, you know, the producers. Right. Okay, so what's your plan right now other than the film? So uh, we're working on the film, and I'm in the process of doing... Um, I just finished uh, a pop-up in New York City. So Chef Yuki Tanaka, he said he wanted to come to New York, and I, I said, that sounds great. What should we do? And so we planned uh, a demonstration at the International Culinary Center where we taught students and alumni and um, other visiting guests about fish, where it comes from, how to fillet it, and how to serve sashimi. And then later that week, we did a small pop-up dinner for... Um, 16 people where we did a New York style kaisaki menu Mm. so that just finished this weekend and uh, I'm getting ready now for a trip to Japan Mm. so in February I'll go to Tokyo for one week and I'm making plans to do a pop-up in Tokyo and then I will go to Kyoto and spend some time training in a restaurant for one month and then I'm going to go to Tokushima where I'm going to visit some friends who are working on a farm project Mm. so uh, so the Kyoto one month, do you have a place to start already? Well, it's tentative now, so I'll have the details soon. Okay. <laughs> and uh, the uh, Tokushima, it's interesting. So what is it about? So I made some friends on my last trip to Japan, and they're working on the government grant. Um, and they've received funding to move to a, a depopulated area with an aging population to learn about the traditional food systems Mm. and uh, other projects that are going on in the community. So they spent the last year farming there. And now I think their project is building a kindergarten. And one of the things that they want to focus on, or one of their initiatives, is bringing in foreign chefs to present their local ingredients in a new way. Mm. So that's part of what I'll be doing while I'm in Tokushima. Exciting. Yeah, Tokushima is one of the, you know, Mashikoku, it's an island, and uh, it's, I, I've never been, actually. It's mm. really beautiful, I heard. Mm. So, yeah, to keep me posted, and I look forward to having you again. Yeah, I'm looking forward to going. Right. So, okay, so where can we find you online? So, my Instagram is at David I Style, and we've also created an Instagram and website for the documentary. The Instagram is at Anatomy of a Meal. Mm. The website is anatomyofameal.live Exciting. We've also simultaneously launched a new brand to support chefs doing pop-ups around the world. And this brand hosted our previous dinner and it's called The Chef's Collective. You can follow us at The Chef's Collective on Instagram or thechefscollective.live That's a great idea. Wow. Okay, this sounds like there's a lot going on. So (laughs) keep me posted. Absolutely. 
Okay, and also、uh, if you have any questions or comments about the show、uh, or suggestions for show topics or guests, please contact us at japanese.heritageradionetwork.org or hikotema.com. And Japanese is live at 3 pm on Mondays and always available at heritageradionetwork.org, iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify as a podcast. So thank you for listening. I'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.